This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. And welcome to my co-hosts, Cerise Howard, Sally Christie and Stuart Richards. Uh, Emma Westwood will be back with us next Monday night if the stars align, I think. Um, how are we all? Hello, hello. Good. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Great. Thank you. Very well, Lisa. <laughs> very, very well. <laughs> Good to hear. Uh, now, on tonight's show, uh, more foreign films than you can poke a baguette at. That's the worst. <laughs> I just couldn't come up with a better joke. <laughs> but I just realised we're all, we're all doing all foreign films tonight. Um, we'll be discussing Swedish film The Square, the new satirical drama from writer-director Ruben Usland. Uh, many will be familiar with his previous film, Force Majeure. Absur- absurd in tone, the film centres around an art installation called The Square and the curator of the museum's gradual fall from grace. And from Chilean director Sebastian Lelio comes A Fantastic Woman, a film about a trans woman struggling to find the space to grieve after the death of her partner and the rejection and discrimination she suffers from his family. Uh, both films are nominated for Best foreign language film at this year's Oscars and in my humble opinion either of them could take out the gong uh, but first a foreign film that is not nominated for best language film Redoutable no. Redoutable Redoutable I said it in my head I, I had to do it in a Borat voice to get it right Redoutable um, is a French biographical comedy drama written and directed by Michel Hazanavicius is that correct Stuart that's a, that's a <laughs> why are you asking me because I was getting an education from you on pronunciation before the show. Hasn't a vicious. Hasn't a vicious. Hasn't a vicious. Whose previous film, The Artist, won Best Picture at the Oscars in 2011. Uh, Rue de Table is based on the memoir by Anna Wierzemski, correct, Cerise? That was nice. That was yeah. nice, thank you. Yeah. Um, the star of several Jean-Luc Godard films of the 60s and 70s, and it follows her affair and marriage to the revered filmmaker at the time. Um, Rue de Table follows the release of Godard's film La Chinoise. Is that right too? La Chinoise? La Chinoise. Yes. Sorry, so many pronunciations tonight. Um, which stars his team bride. Uh, Jean-Luc is gripped by an existential crisis in the wake of the film's um, reception, sort of mixed reception, uh, through the prism of his relationship with Vyazemsky and the massive strikes and civil unrest that gripped France in May of 1968. Goddard's self-examination compels him to pursue his convictions, even if it costs him his marriage and irrevocably changes his artistic sensibilities forever. Stacey Martin plays Vyazemsky, the 19-year-old actor and Goddard's muse in art and life. Though quiet and unassuming, she exudes the frustrations of a young woman whose entire world is overshadowed by a domineering partner played here by Louis Guerrel. Um, I thought I'd just kick this one off tonight because um, I have to say that going into this film, I sort of did roll my eyes at yet another film about a perceived male genius and his young female lover slash muse because personally I've had my fill of these what with Mother last year and more recently Phantom Thread which I know everyone else liked but I didn't like it <laughs> um, but I was actually presently surprised to find that for the most part Rue de Table is simply a charming rom-com is how I sort of saw it um, and it sort of draws on the appeal of early Goddard films which I quite liked um, using the techniques and of the French New Wave in this sort of self-conscious tongue-in-cheek way, I'd sort of say, lots of um, jump cut editing and um, breaking the fourth wall and um, even 
the lighting, you know, it was stylistically quite beautiful and it captured that time really well. I thought Garel's portrayal of Goddard humanised the art- artist, sort of grounding him in emotions of self-doubt, jealousy, egotism, and that sort of builds into this existential crisis that demystified the artist as this godlike genius. And as he says at one point, I am just an actor playing Goddard in a bad film. And I thought that was quite hilarious and, <laughs> and telling. I didn't think it was a remarkable film, but um, I did really enjoy it. What did others think? This is totally a film for cinema. Files. And for anyone invested in Jean-Luc Godard, or at least that period, that golden period in the 60s, this is a lot of fun because there are so many jokes for people who know those films or at least know some of them or at least had a passing acquaintance with them. The aesthetics of this film draw so heavily from Godard's own uh, lexicon, um, uh, everything from the, the tricolour, the tri. Three colours, red, white and blue. You see it all throughout Godard's films (laughs) and you see it all throughout this. Uh, This film, actually, his apartment looks an awful lot like uh, that scene in the film, La Chinoise. Um, I I don't know if they actually shot it in his own apartment, uh, La Chinoise, that is back in the day. They very possibly did. Um, There's so much in there that that directly references Godard's own filmmaking with a a certain amount of panache. And I think Louis Gurel embodies uh, God uh, hilariously well. The arrogance, uh, such arrogance. I mean, yes, there's a lot of self-doubt <laughs> there, but it's it's more than tempered by uh, excessive um, arrogance. And um, you know, for someone who was born into a very wealthy Swiss family, as Godard was, that, that he pillories so many of his contemporaries, and including his friends, and has all these massive... Uh, storied fallings out with them for for their being so bourgeois. Yes. (laughs) It's comical and it it is played for laughs in this as well. I think Godard really nails it. Uh, His Godard is sort of relatable, but also I find him incredibly unlikable, but I've found the man himself very unlikable for some time now and many of his films unlikable. But yeah, I I actually really had a lot of fun with this. I thought it was good fun too. Again, I didn't think it was a remarkable film, but I do think that it was good fun. Um, But I felt um, that Goddard and Fiazemski in it were so incredibly frustrating, both of them. Um, Him with his arrogance and her with, I felt, I found that she was very meek in it. Um, But... I still, I still did enjoy it. I enjoyed all those plays, the other Goddard films. That one particular one where they're watching Joan of Arc in the cinema, gorgeous, yeah, like really, really beautiful. Yeah. Um, that, that was in there. Mm. I loved the car ride back to Paris. That was great fun. But yeah, I, I, I did. I found it very, very funny, but it was kind of unremarkable for me as well. I I did find it charming and I do think a lot of cinephiles will jump at the chance to see this to test their own knowledge of uh, Goddard's film. There's a lot of allusions to his work here. My favourite is the Joan of Arc scene. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Um, you know, alluding to uh, Vivre Seville. And I, but, but I think there's also going to be a reaction here where some might roll their eyes at just how obvious those allusions are. Mm. So I think, I actually think this might divide audiences because of that. Um, I did find her meekness incredibly frustrating. I love that this is, um, it's based on her autobiography. Um, so, you know, this is from her perspective, uh, but... I found constantly on his like yelling at the screen, going kind of do something. He's such an asshole. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, she's incredibly passive yeah. in this film. I think that the thing that slightly saved it for me is her voiceover. So yes. there's like two voiceovers. Yeah. There's a sort of this sort of ambivalent or sort of, uh, I don't know, we don't know who it is, a disembodied voice and her. Um, and I did like that that was there. And that, But you needed to know, I think, mm. that it was only because I knew that this was based on a book that she'd written yeah. that I kind of felt it was justified. But I agree with you. Otherwise, mm. I was just like, she's so vacuous. It's interesting though as well that her books that, that particularly this book is very dry very matter of fact and that they've taken this and made it a comedy mm. with a lot of the subject matter being really serious like you know what was going on politically and obviously uh, Goddard took himself very very seriously mm. and <laughs> that they've gone and kind of twisted that and made it so funny. I did enjoy that it's the, the portrait of, of an artist um, trying to maintain his relevance mm. and at, at a time when he was so out of sync um, with the political movements of the time and the young people of the time and every he sort of ingratiates himself with with the youth of the time and, and tries to um, be the voice of the people and he just gets it wrong so many times and I really enjoyed that aspect of the film. Yeah, well, only 10 years earlier he'd revolutionised cinema. Yes. and But here he is in 19... <laughs> 68 and uh, the, the scenes where he's there amongst the students uh, lecturing them. First, they give him the, the microphone freely. Um, big mistake. Yeah, big mistake. <laughs> that hilarious rant about uh, Jews and Nazis, which is yes. so incredibly awkward and wrong and convoluted and just digging himself ever deeper a hole. Is, is wonderful and I'm sure it's all true to life. Mm. Lovely running joke about him and his glasses, which yes, is um, so great. enjoyably riffs uh, on, uh, for anyone who's seen Faces Places can enjoy the uh, the running um, commentary between Agnes Varda and J.R. in that film about trying to get J.R.'s glasses off and, and Varda compares him to Goddard who famously would never take his glasses off. But in this film, he's forever losing them and having them replaced. crushed and <laughs> replaced. And there's something satisfactorily, very satisfyingly metaphorical about that as well, I think, that he keeps losing his vision. But also unable to see everyone around him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, because of his this existential crisis he goes through in this film, he's pushing everyone away, particularly his wife. And constantly his glasses are getting broken and he's just completely unable to see how what he's doing to those around him. And they also sort of, to me, signified a sense of his identity as well. That was such a, you know, an identifying feature of, of the man. Mm. Um, and the fact that he kept having to replace them was really comical <laughs> at this little optical shop every every week. He was back <laughs> for new glasses and complaining about the price. Um Anything else to add? Well, yeah, just that, you know, for the, the cinephiles out there, there's a lot of joy to be had in, in uh, his, his interactions with a, an actor playing Bernardo Bertolucci. There's all this, um, there's this whole tapestry here of relations. So Louis Garel is the son of a, a renowned French filmmaker, Philippe Garel. Together they made a film about the events of 68, um, The Regular Lovers some years ago, a three-hour-long epic, kind of grim but compelling. Uh, Garel, Louis Garel... Garel Jr. was in Bertolucci's film The Dreamers, which was set at this exact same time. So that's all in the mix here. And we've, so Bertolucci features in this film uh, played by an Italian actor and has a wonderful falling out with Goddard. And there's, there's, there's just more and more. You can dig deep into this if you are so inclined. There's, there's plenty in there for, the, um, for those who, who are really heavily invested in that period. And I know a lot of people are. Uh, I'm not sure if this film premiered at Cannes, but that would have been a beautifully ironic thing to have happened if indeed it did. <laughs> uh, 
for reasons that are spelled down in the film, which are true to historical fact as well. Uh, and Goddard thought the whole idea of this film was stupid. And silly. And silly. So that's a great stamp of approval. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, see it despite that miserable old fuck. He's uh, long had it coming, really. He's long had this skewering coming. I think it's really satisfying. Yeah, I, I, I just really enjoyed... The de- not dehumanising, but the, the humanising of these people that we put up on pedestals just to mm. show that they are just human beings. They're not godlike, even though their name is Godard. Um, if you would like to see this film, um, it is playing at the French Film Festival, which starts this Wednesday and runs till March 27th, and it's on limited release at all good independent cinemas. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. A Fantastic Woman or Un Mujer Fantastico is the latest film from Chilean director Sebastian Lelio and follows the journey of transgender singer Marina Vidal. Marina, played by Daniela Vega, and her boyfriend Orlando, played by Francisco Reyes, um, who is 20 years her senior, have built a quiet but not secret life together, safe and free of judgment. Early scenes of the couple at a bar where Marina is singing at a birthday dinner and later their apartment are warm and tender, but their tranquil world is suddenly disrupted when Orlando suffers an aneurysm and dies suddenly. The gentle world that Lelio has created for this couple quickly falls away. Marina is devastated and worse, she is treated like a criminal from the workers at the hospital where her partner dies and later her very existence is callously called into question by her lover's family whose ex-wife, siblings and children challenged by her sexuality and what that represents see her as a shame on their family. They attempt to erase Marina from their family's history by, by denying her grieving rights at Orlando's funeral and access to the apartment. This escalates to much more violent acts of discrimination and somehow Marina endures the abuse while trying to maintain a sense of dignity. To me, this was a work of searing empathy. It paints a beautiful portrait of a young transgender protagonist played by the remarkable actress Daniela Vega, who's who herself is a transgender woman and singer and, and takes the audience on this journey with her. Um, it's not a melodramatic performance. It's subtle and as naturally beautiful as she is. And um, while it's not a perfect film by any measure, if you come out of this film unmoved without any, any empathy, then you have no soul because it was so <laughs> moving. Um, what did others think of this film? And I challenge you not to use the word fantastic in your review. Oh. <laughs> Uh, it was amazing. <laughs> no, I saw it last night and it just dealt with everything in such a beautifully subtle and sensitive way. Even the score reflected that sensitivity throughout it, that kind of triggering score that was in it. And it was just one of those films that I think is so incredibly beautiful that it's hard to articulate how excellent it was. But um, just the sensitivity and the way it dealt with everything it's perfect. Yeah, that score is really effective. At, at times it's quite unsettling. I find where the film almost slips into a thriller mm. uh, genre where she's got that key and where does it lead? Um, but then other times it's just it's very melancholic, I find. And there are so many wonderful medium close-up close-up shots of her looking straight at the camera. Um, it's almost like, you know, demanding that we acknowledge her and demanding that we uh, sort of empathise for her pain. There are a lot of mirror shots as well, so there's all constantly these reflections mm. um, of her as well. And I really loved those moments when 
the, the film became surreal. So all of those moments when she has those just incredibly emotional, I guess, sort of breakthroughs in her grieving that... They, they, they sort of the landscape and her environment completely shifts into this just in chaotic frenzy. I mean, the, the nightclub scene with her, the glittery coat is just incredible. Uh, I really love this film. I thought it was incredible. Uh, I yeah, I adored this film, and uh, I think it's tremendously important. She's going to be the first um, trans star of a film to give out an award at the Oscars very shortly, which is an incredibly important moment. I think this film can now become exhibit A in the debate of why casting a trans actor rather than having somebody in drag uh, is so valuable and put an end to the casting of people like Eddie Redmayne, Danish Girl, or especially Jared Leto for that. Uh, appalling turn in Dallas Buyers Club, both of which were richly rewarded with Oscars. Mm. Um, the authenticity uh, of having someone on screen. I mean, if you really want me to empathise with a trans person, and for me, that's ordinarily not terribly hard being one myself, mm. but make me believe in this person by removing the artifice of having somebody conspicuously performing gender. Instead, have somebody be gender which can actually mean anything ultimately, actually. But just don't have me watching uh, a man uh, frock up and ask me to respect that person's uh, performance and especially, you know, garland it with prizes because I think that's that's time has well and truly gone, I really hope. I mean, that's not to say people shouldn't be able to play with gender on screen and assume drag roles, but if you want me to believe in it, especially a trans story... Uh, as we have in this film, the, the benefits are there for all to see. She is magnificent, Daniela Vega. Mm. Industrially, this is such an important moment, actually. And for a trans actor, and I'm using that term in a gender-neutral way, I yeah. do um, I assert immediately now, um, uh, it's that they will always be marked by their transness. So it's so important that you, you cast them, otherwise, um, you know, they'll be out of work, basically. It's, uh, it's just ethically the thing to do, too. Now, back to the film's own merits, it's, it is a wonderful chunk of magic realist... Um, in fact, the term that the director liked to use was transgenre, <laughs> which is basically the same word as gender, in fact, genre, gender, it's mm. much of the same thing. And th this film does span a number of, of uh, genres and it does it so very satisf satisfyingly and movingly. And um, I just hope there's a glittering career ahead for Daniela Vega. I think she's magnificent. And the director, Sebastian Lelio, is um, one to watch as well. Yeah, he, he reminds me of um, Almodovar in a lot of his sensibilities. I think visually there's some really beautiful uh, artistic scenes in this film of her battling against wind, um, her coming up against a mirror image of herself on the street. There's another other oh, dance. There's a wonderful dance sequence, so which, yeah, was so beautiful. She um, She's sort of um, bearing uh, the hatred of this family um, and, it, and you get the sense that this is um, a prejudice she's felt all her life and she she tries to bear it with dignity and grace and she sort of does amazingly she sort of sucks it all in and doesn't let anything out um, and tries so hard to sort of disappear for them a lot of the time and there's a wonderful scene where she goes to a club which is quite a hardcore kind of environment um, and she's sort of dancing and, and loses herself in the dance and it, it turns into a, a routine but there's nothing cheesy here, there's nothing melodramatic, it's not Priscilla Queen of the Bloody Desert, it's um, 
it's just it's beautiful filmmaking and yeah it reminds me of uh, sort of Almodovar's some I'm, I'm trying to think of um like Bad Education I think is one film that sort of sprung to mind while whilst watching this um and I actually probably yearned for some more artistry is the only thing I would say I really loved and cherished those moments and probably would have would have liked a bit more of them um Stuart you mentioned the soundtrack and I, and that reminded me a lot of um actually our opening theme song Vertigo which is Bernard Herman is that his mm, name the yeah, um the, yeah the, the, he composed a lot for um f- for Hitchcock and it did have this sort of Hitchcockian vibe going on because um there's an insinuation well well the there's an investigation. Did you, did she kill her husband, you know, or yeah. her partner, sorry, um, uh, which is so unfair and so unjust and so clearly wouldn't have happened had she not been transgendered. Um, and uh, you get this kind of, uh, yeah, this Hitchcockian sort of vibe that, that Lelio um, injects throughout the film, but he doesn't really go there. And probably because it's not... You know, she's not a steely blonde. <laughs> she's a trans woman, and um, and I quite like that he didn't go there. But but I also felt that he was sort of, yeah, didn't really. He was playing a couple of genres, as you say, but didn't really get. I don't know. There was something at the end that just I just wanted a bit a bit more. I think, but I love this film. I think he's flirting with uh, that Hitchcockian aspect, and I think it gets to a point in the film where he punishes us for having those doubts about her character as well. Um, so I think that was a very deliberate act of sort of not following through mm. with that particular line of kind of thought. Yeah, I think it is interesting, particularly what you were saying before, Stuart, with the score and those parts, how it almost becomes a thriller, that it is super unsettling because that music is not suited to what we're thinking should happen. Mm. You know, if we look into the sort of sections with the key you think, oh, you know, maybe this whole movie's going to change this way, it's going to take this turn. But they're really just little glimpses of hope for her, this envelope, this key, there's a piece of hope. And then at the end of that bit of hope, there's nothing. And it's just this gorgeous exploration of her resilience. And I think, yeah, the score plays into that as well. Really well, it's classic Hitchcockian MacGuffin. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, uh, yeah. Look, it's a, a, a truly gorgeous film. The Almodovar thing I agree with too. There's mm. even just in the colour... Yeah, the colour palette. Deployed in the palette, yeah. Um, but also just in its humanity, its humi- humanism. Almodovar is one of the great humanist directors for mine, especially where queer characters are concerned. And he was well a- ahead of that curve because he just... Um, and I mean, women. that was his milieu. Yeah, yeah. and women, absolutely. Yeah. And fantastic women. And fantastical yeah. women. I agree. There's a wonderful... Oh, well, it's not wonderful. It's quite a disturbing scene where... Um, where she gets um, Daniela's character Marina gets sort of abducted momentarily, and and her face is sort of um, taped up with with tape, and she's um, then sees a reflection of herself, and her face is so distorted. And I thought that was such a wonderful, a horrible, but but wonderful image of. Um, it actually reminded me of um, David Lynch's The Elephant Man of all films, of um, Merrick's character, of that I am not an animal kind of, you know, screaming that's, that she's internalising. Um, and it was such a startling, uh, there was some wonderfully startling 
scenes like that that I thought worked really, really well and, and they were underplayed, which I really appreciated. That was so human and so real. Well, there are all those times where her own gaze is reflected back to her and in, in one way or another it's distorted as some people carry a huge mirror across the street. Mm. But then there are times where she actually controls the image and controls what we, the audience, receive. She actually even clutches, it seems, the camera, the very frame. She, she uh, defines the you know, she sort of floats in that magic realist dance sequence up towards the camera and seems to grip it on either side and stares blank down the barrel of it uh, at the audience and it's powerful it's challenging mm. there's another really wonderful moment when there's a mirror in her lap it actually reminded me of paintings by magritte where the gaze returned in it is a challenge uh it, it's it's very particularly placed that mirror and it, we don't see her seeing we don't see her eyes looking at it, we just see the reflection, but it's also a challenge to us, that, that reflection. Um, it's to see her for who she really is mm. and, and it, a clear message for people who still don't get it that trans people are not defined by genitalia. Yes. That's not what gender is. Yes. And uh, it's just beautifully underplayed. I think that message should still come through to even the thickest of viewers, yeah. I hope. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was really great too that the film starts off with um, her partner's point of view. Um, I'm trying to remember his name, Orlando's point of view. I thought that was really quite clever, a clever device to get um, viewers who might not be familiar, you know, or have, have um, had many interactions with trans gendered people. I thought that was a good way to sort of start the film to get the masses in, I suppose. I don't know if I'm being cynical, but um, so he's only on screen for like 15 minutes, I suppose, and then it switches and then it's her point of view. Um, and I, and then I thought it was great because you're with her the whole time. You're just so empathetic. You just want to protect her and, and you feel her pain and you feel the prejudice it, it, in every interaction that she experiences throughout this film. Let's talk about her incredible voice briefly as well. Yeah. That's actually her singing. Oh, is it? Yes. It is her, yes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, both the nightclub scene, uh, where she sings that rather uh, wonderful, upbeat tune, something to do with the news. I, I can't yeah. remember quite how the lyrics, yes. as they're translated, go. But um, then opera. She yeah. is an incredible, uh, it must be in the soprano register there. Apparently they changed the script for her because she um, they only wanted pop songs in there and she said, no, I won't sing them. Well, it wasn't working. I think yeah. um, Lelio actually, when he came up with the idea for this film, which he co-wrote with um, a previous collaborator, um, he just wanted to make a film about somebody who loses a partner and is denied the grieving process by the family, like is, is not allowed into that. And it hadn't occurred to him to make that character a transgendered person. Um, and then he met... Um, Daniela Vega. Daniela Vega. Yeah. And, um, and they spent, I think, two, the best part of two years just being friends and um, then he presented her with a script at the end of that. And, yes, I think within that script he'd written her to be a pop singer and it wasn't working and she sort of stormed in and said, no, I'm, not, I'm actually a proper singer. I can sing opera. I can sing. Mm, you know, her voice was just incredible. Yeah, it was beautifully, beautifully done. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. 
The Square is a satirical drama from writer-director Ruben Usland. Many will be familiar with his previous film, Force Majeure, about a father who abandons his family during an avalanche only to find the natural disaster was a false alarm, but the damage is done and his masculinity questioned. Um, still dealing with the de- deconstruction of masculinity, this time Usland directs his biting social commentary at the art world. The film centres around an art installation called The Square. The media storm that surrounds its promotion, the glitterati that attend the exhibition, the homeless people that live outside the museum and the curator of the museum's gradual fall from grace. The square within the film is a four by four metre cordoned off square with a plaque stating that the square is a sanctuary of trust and caring. Within it, we all share equal rights and obligations. Though what that says for anyone outside the square proves quite troubling. Christian, played by Klaus Bang, is the respectable curator of the Contemporary Art Museum that hosts the square exhibition. A divorced but devoted father, Christian drives an electric car, supports good causes and occasionally gives money to the homeless that sleep outside his museum. He is well respected but his ideals are challenged when he makes a foolish decision to track down and threaten a petty thief who stole his smartphone, dragging him into shameful situations. Um, Much like an abstract art piece itself, the film is populated with a series of hilarious and cringeworthy set pieces, most notably two men protecting a woman on the street and then immediately forgetting about her when the attack is over to congratulate each other, a fight over the disposal of a a used condom, an altercation between a grown man and a preteen, an art curator stuffing threatening letters into the doors of hundreds of housing commission flats and demanding the return of his phone and a bout of Tourette's at the International Artists Q&A. Um... The Square features Elizabeth Moss as a journalist and Dominic West of The Wire fame as a contemporary artist. The film won the Palme d'Or at Cannes last year, has gone on to win six European Film Awards and is nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film at this year's Academy Awards. Uh, What did we all make of The Square? There's a lot going on there. There's a lot. I could have gone on. I'm just like... To stop talking because it was it was almost cacophonous, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a very chaotic film. Uh, Force majeure, I think, is such a controlled, tight, delightfully passive aggressive film. <laughs> but this is just so chaotic, and I, and I loved that for it. I mean, there's that scene at the very beginning between Christian and. Anne, um, Elizabeth Moth's character, Moth's, Moth, not Moth, um, <laughs> and he can't really describe what the art is about. He can't describe what the exhibition's about. Uh, he can't really translate it into anything meaningful for her. And I find that this film is almost a little bit like that itself, where there's just so much going on. But it's so delightfully nutty. Uh, I mean, Anne has a, a pet chimp in her apartment, which is great, and then we get that wonderful dining sequence where the the method actor comes out and terrorises the crowd, which apparently they did at an actual screening once. That actor came out and... Well, that actor, I forget his name, but he... Terry Notary. Terry Notary. Mm. He um, does all the motion capture for the Planet of the Apes films. Mm. He's remarkably good at it. And, um, yes, it's probably the most... um, awkward uh, scene in the film um, and where, yes, it's it sort of um, just, just that there's a, um, a very,
very grand dinner that the museum puts on for its um, wealthiest patrons mm. and most famous celebrities. Um, and the star of the show is Oleg, who um, who performs as a as a chimp. Um, and they're all delighted by these sort of Darwinian um, the things that he's sort of bringing to their attention. But um, uh, it becomes it, it descends very quickly, doesn't it, to sort of uh, chaos and uh, fear. Yeah, it's a very Bunwellian uh, episode. A lot of uh, bourgeoisie baiting. Um, in fact, there's plenty of that in this film, not least the, the main character, Christian, who for all the decent things he does, he undoes and his, his own hypocrisy is constantly brought uh, front and centre in this film. And, and we're definitely implicated as audiences, presumed middle class, often white. And uh, I think it's, uh, there's plenty in this film to call into question how we would conduct ourselves in many of these same incredibly awkward situations. And it also has a, a, a great joy in uh, taking jabs at the, um, the glam sector, as it is, is known, uh, the uh, galleries, libraries, archives and museums sector. <laughs> there, there's one magnificently, at least one magnificently excruciating um, meeting held between marketing people and museum staff, which is partly how things end up spiralling as they do for Christian. I've sat in similar meetings in workplaces in the past and I found that oh so relatable and oh so painful. There's actually in so many of these scenes and for that one I could relate to directly, not that much exaggeration, mm. but it's still uh, comical. Just enough to make it funny, but also not so much that it doesn't retain some very relatable awkwardness. I thought it just captured the wankery of modern art so beautifully. And um, especially those little piles of gravel that they had as an <laughs> exhibition. Uh, I'm the first to say I'd probably be there at Mona lining up to go and see them, but it really... I, th I think what you were saying, Cerise, is that it is relatable, that I was going, God, I'm that wanker that would probably go and see that and be taking photos. But the awkwardness of the film was really sublime, I think. That, that's, that scene you're talking about was... I actually found this film utterly hilarious. It was I was, so I was funny. laughing through... And it sort of has stayed with me, actually. But I wouldn't... I don't know, the art gallery, I wouldn't compare it to Mona. Mona, to me... I love Mona. Well, Mo I no, but I've been to those uh, galleries in, in, in Germany and yep. like the Kunst and stuff. And <laughs> I remember actually, I shouldn't, I don't know if I should say it. Or say it. But <laughs> when I was 18, I think I was, at, I think it's called the Kunst uh, from memory. I was at some gallery, uh, museum and it was like that. It was such wank. I mean, we're talking about a scene where there were, there are piles of gravel on the ground and a poor cleaner is trying to figure out how to clean around them <laughs> yeah. and accidentally sweeps up some of the exhibit. Um, <laughs> which, which I just found hilarious. I, when I was at this gallery when I was 18 in, in my arrogance of youth, <laughs> I was eating an apple and there was this awful supposed bit of art which was um, a plank of wood suspended by some string. That was it. Um, and so I left my apple core <laughs> in the middle of it to improve the art is what I thought. <laughs> and I came back an hour later and people were taking photos of it. And I thought <laughs> it was remarkable. And I think that says a lot about what this film is about. Yeah, exactly. um, but yeah, but 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 I won't have you besmirch Mona. <laughs> no, I do. I love no, Mona. No, I, I think Mona is, is I, I sort of see it as like the Disneyland for intellectuals or something. Yeah. It is a bit of fun. Um, but yeah, I, look, I, 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 I thought the interaction between the homeless and high art was really interesting. 
there are a lot of people that sort of sleep on the doorsteps of this museum and um, the curate Christian's interaction with them. Um, he's, sometimes he's very warm with them and gives them money and other times he's very spiteful and um, there's a funny scene where a woman says, can you buy me a sandwich? And he says, okay. And she says, but no onions. And um, <laughs> he's like, what? She's like, no onions. And he goes and buys her the sandwich and gives her the sandwich and goes, and there's onions in it. You have to pick them out yourself. <laughs> this is sort of like giving and taking away I found really hilarious um, and his response to um, his lost mobile phone it sort of starts the film uh, there's a woman running through the street screaming for help and a, a man helps her and asks Christian the director of the museum to help too and they do and they scare the man off and then later and they're sort of very self-congratulatory aren't we great men look we just saved this woman and the woman they don't even <laughs> acknowledge the woman who's disappeared and then he realises he's, he's been mugged and, and made a fool um, and then gets on the find my iPhone app and tries to track them down and um, I just found it's just absolutely hilarious that um, this man who's trying to create art that um, looks, you know, uh, looks to be helpful to the to the poor, um, and then is very quick to sort of, um, you know, dismiss them. He hates having that boundary crossed. I mean, it's almost as if he's in within his own square that he doesn't want anyone there to cross. Squares popping up all through yeah. the yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, also that that meeting that you were talking about, I was almost expecting um, Eddie and. Um, Eddie Monsoon to pop up in that meeting going, PR, darling, PR, yeah. PR, yeah. PR. So fantastic. Mm, their painful. sound design in it really enhanced the yeah. awkwardness of their human interactions, I think, particularly between um, Christian and Elizabeth Moss' character, Anne, when they were having that conversation that I think we just heard a little bit of before on the ad saying, yeah. you know, do you remember <laughs> my name? And there was some construction noise or something seats. that was going... It was part of an exhibition. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. a pile of seats yeah. tapering on the edge yeah. of collapse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in the background that yeah. was just, you know, really enhanced how incredibly awkward you know, having that conversation was for the both of them. And how precarious. Yes. Everything in this film is precarious, every human interaction. It's not quite as modern to view of Swedish society as uh, Roy Anderson's films, uh, like um, a Song from the Second Floor and A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Contemplating Its Own Existence, I think it's the full title, but it's, it's close to it. There's something very uh, interesting happening in Swedish culture, I think. I think they're beginning to turn the gaze in on themselves and, and realise that for all their love of order... There is utter chaos in that country, just like everywhere else. And uh, the well-to-do have got a lot to answer for. Yes, they do. Um, I did think, Stuart, that, it, I mean, you sort of say that they're all sort of disjointed sort of set pieces and stuff, but I actually felt that they were all sort of representative of him, of his mm. sort of place within this world. And even that um, chimp that lives with a sexual partner of his, in the, which is barely acknowledged in the scene, yeah. it's just a chimp wandering through a bedroom. <laughs> um, but I sort of felt that that was sort of, you know, emblematic of, of his sort of primal side. And then later that dinner where, the, where there's... Mm. An, ape-like creature it's it's just of the it's the unraveling you know mm. it's sort of unleashing this sort of um primal masculinity onto the these diners i thought it was i, I think it's quite a, a wonderful unique film i'd say and ironically know. it premiered at Cannes. 
Mm. Yes. <laughs> which I <Yeah>. love. <laughs> which was allowed to proceed this year. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Square and A Fantastic Woman, Woman sorry, are both currently on limited release and playing at your local independent movie theatre. Um, Rue, Rue du Table is screening as part of this year's French Film Festival, which kicks off this Wednesday. Um, the film is also on limited release. You have been listening to Cerise Howard, Sally Christie, Stuart Richards and myself, Lisa Kovacevic, production coordination and podcast editing by Faith Everard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.